beautiful story. We're looking at the first 22 verses of Ruth that make up chapter one. But before you turn there, we're actually going to start in Judges 2, um, just to confuse you. So if you've brought your Bibles with you, turn to Judges 2 and we will be heading over to Ruth, so don't worry. Ruth is a beautiful story. It's beautiful because it celebrates the Lord's sovereign and gracious rule over his people at a time that was actually really dark and difficult. Understanding this period of Israel's history is important, not just because it's great that we know a little bit of the background whilst we go into this series and a bit of the backdrop. It's important, really important, because like so much of Scripture, There's actually a lot of things going on at the same time. And in this story of Ruth, we actually have three different stories that are playing out. And to understand those stories, we need to understand the context for this book. So one story is about the family of Naomi. It's about their situation. It's about their desperation. And it's about the activity of God on their behalf to reveal his nature and to bring them into restoration and security. Okay, family of Naomi. It's also about the family of Israel. It's about their situation, their desperation, and about the relentless activity of God on their behalf to reveal his nature and to bring them into future restoration and security. And unsurprisingly, as we heard in worship, because we've been grafted into this family, it is also our family story. This book tells us about our struggles. It speaks to us about our desperation. It speaks to us about the activity of God, the faithful activity of God to reveal his nature and to bring about our restoration and lasting security. So there's three stories going on. This is a little bit of a gear change from our cheery Christmas music and a bit of elf go, but um, bear with me. Um, The story of Abraham's family. I don't know if you've read Judges, but that's where we're going to go because as we see when we read Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, it starts, so the whole book of Ruth starts, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. Okay, so that history, that period of time is mostly um, explained and described in the book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament. And I don't know if you've read it, don't worry if you haven't, but give it a read because we need to read all of scripture, but it is a frustrating read. It's a frustrating read because we read about this faithful God, covenanted to his people, this true God who keeps promises, and yet we also keep reading about a faithless people who, while being covenant partners, continually break their promises. This the summary actually of of Judges is in in chapter 2 and it's it's actually really helpful so that's why we're going there first. Um, In verse 1 of chapter 2 in Judges it says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, 
don't know if you'd say that, botchim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt. This is God speaking. He's talking about um, his commitment to them as being like their God. I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So Israel's story, remember we're looking at the story of Abraham's family, Israel's story continually talks to us about Yahweh, this true and living God, the one who delivers. See it there. He delivered them out of, out of Egypt, the one who is faithful, the promise keeper, the, the light in the darkness. And as we read in verse 2, God's people in turn made promises Verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Israel were privileged covenant partners. God's commitment to continue to deliver his people from their enemies and to provide for them what they needed was wrapped up in his people's commitment to love him and worship him alone. But the people continually turned away from God to other things and broke their promises. So we read on in that verse, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. That's the the peoples of the land. For they shall become thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, they lifted up their voices and wept. But their grief was short-lived because in verse 10, it says there arose after Joshua a generation who did not know the Lord, all the work he had done for them, and they turned away from their God. Even in that moment when their hearts were convicted and grieved, just didn't last. So in verse 11, all it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That's the gods of the surrounding neighbours. They started to worship um, the idols. And they abandoned the Lord, their God of their fathers, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. They pursued other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Israel's desperate state was brought about because they had failed to be faithful. But God, by his continual grace was faithful because look at verse 16 even in that they had broken their side of the the covenant says then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them there was God's grace on display as he raised up these judges but there was this destructive cycle this pattern of behavior that the children of Israel were locked into Verse 18, because whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity for their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judges died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. Do you see this cycle? And as this cycle repeats, Israel deteriorates. It's interesting for us today that this rebellion against God in the book of Judges is actually characterized by this phrase that says, um, everyone did, it says there's no king, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes, or everyone did as he saw fit. Does that sound familiar? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, friends, we live in a dark age spiritually today. We actually live in an age where the highest good in our Western culture is individual freedom. 
We live in an age where being free to do what is right in your own eyes is probably the de facto mantra of our day. It's celebrated. It's a cultural hope that we have. So much so that you might be a Christian right now, sitting here and thinking, but how could that be a problem? You've probably heard this phrase, if you've been coming to New Community for a little while, where we, we talk about there being ultimately two influences on our lives. And one of those is the world that we live in, and the other is the word of God. In the West, the world says that you are most free and fulfilled when you can be authentically you. When you can be true to yourself, when you can be uninhibited and unconstrained, that's when you're truly free, free to do what is right in your own eyes. The word says, talking about the Bible here, the word of God, that true and lasting and genuine freedom and life lived to the full is found by having our lives united to the life of Christ, which means that our lives are not our own. They were bought with a price. Subsequently, we therefore live not just to please ourselves, but to deny ourselves and live to please the one who saved us. So true freedom, according to the word of God, is found in being able to be free to do what God thinks is right. That's what true freedom biblically looks like. And we see this played out in scripture. Over and over again, apart from the intervention of Christ in our life, apart from his unmerited favour, left to ourselves... There could be no hope, no freedom, no future, no restoration. And it has always been that way. In Israel, in the period of the judges, people were, everyone was just doing whatever was right in their eyes. And so there was this cycle of spiritual and moral decline. But even in those cycles, God continued to outwork his salvation plan. Isn't that amazing? Even in this destructive cycle, God continued to work out his salvation plan because God's mercy and his grace was the one that was shaping the story of Abraham's family. The revelation of God's character as merciful and compassionate, it keeps the story moving along the plot lines of salvation. When I was writing this, I just felt like it was this current. You know, you read it in lots of different sections of scripture, um, old and new. There's this incredible force, this power, this current of God's faithfulness. It is ebbing and flowing throughout, moving people along, moving people into his salvation plan. And, and, And you might have experienced that in your life too this power this force of God the faithfulness of God that even in your stupid decisions and my stupid decisions God was faithful and he's continued to do a restoring and a redemptive work in our lives this is the story of God this is the story of Abraham's family nothing can thwart God's redemptive story but this was a difficult and dark time nonetheless And it's this period of Israel's history that is the backdrop to the story of Naomi. So now we move on to the story of Naomi. We're going to start in uh, Ruth, um, because that's the story of Naomi. In the first chapter, I'm actually just going to read the first 22 verses. I hope you don't mind, but I think it's worth it. It should come on the screen behind me. In the days when the judges ruled, we've covered that bit, um, there was a famine in the land and the man of Bethlehem, a man of Bethlehem in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with two, her two sons. They took Moabite wives. Moabite wives. The name of the, of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Matlon and Chilion died, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, and even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. But they clung... They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, this is what Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, even if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Naomi, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Bethlehem um, in Hebrew means house of bread. Okay, it's interesting, the irony there means house of bread. But there was in fact this famine in the land. And out of Bethlehem, Elimelech and his, Naomi, his wife Naomi and their sons went to take up temporary residence in Moab. That's what sojourning means, it's temporary residence. And very quickly in those first few verses, there's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Naomi endured famine and had to flee. She was a foreigner in a land and lost her husband, and then she lost both her sons. And this is over this is a decade of basically of tragedy. She was emptied of every male in her family. And this was very significant, this emptying, because 
in, in the culture of the day, that was a way of securing any sort of um, financial security, any hope, any sense of legacy. Husbands and sons brought stability. They brought significance to the lives of women at the time. And she was emptied of that. But the action starts when she's in this field in Moab and there's this report that she hears that the Lord has visited Judah and given them bread. So she decides to return. And then you get this crucial moment in this first scene of these um, women on the road to Bethlehem. And I think this moment's remarkable in this story. Picture it now. It's not a road like we have. This was a rugged um, desert path. It would have been about 30 miles. It would have involved crossing the River Jordan because going around it like that would have been far too hard and it, it would have taken between seven and ten days. This was a hard and difficult journey and what we have is if you picture the scene zooming in we have these three widowed women weeping in the wilderness. They are weeping in the wilderness and by every measure these three people could not have been more insignificant in the culture at the time. These women had no hope, no status, no power. But out of this moment, we have Ruth clinging to Naomi and speaking these words that would be known for generations and generations to come. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. Where you go, I will go. And in this moment, all three stories that we're looking at intersect. Because in that moment, in that decision that brought about a remarkable turn of events. Ruth commits unwaveringly to this tragic, emptied woman, at woman and the decision changes the course of history. It's an amazing moment. For as we're going to discover in the book of Ruth, God is not against her. He is actually actively working on her behalf to bless her beyond how she could, what she could ever have imagined or seen. And so we come to our family story. But as we you know, focus on this, just this scene and nothing that comes after, because there's always that temptation, but if we look at just this scene, this opening chapter gives us a really sobering picture of the harsh realities of life. In this fallen world today, as we know, when we read the news, when we have conversations with people, when we're just aware of what's happening, we live in a world that still face, where we still face famine and death and fear and injustice and depression and, and, and this, this emptying because of circumstances. Sometimes we as believers can actually therefore interpret these circumstances as evidence that God has disregard for us. He doesn't care for us like Naomi did. I don't intend this talk to be an apologetic for suffering um, or an attempt to explain the problem of evil. That's not where this passage logically takes us. But what it does do is point us to three um, realities of what living as a covenant family, that's us, um, what living as a family looks like in the midst of sin and suffering. So three realities for us as a family from this passage. Number one, the temptation to retreat and redefine. How do we respond when trouble hits? When hardship comes, we can be tempted to withdraw from home. When life becomes hard, it is actually a real human instinct to want to withdraw from community life. Bear with me now, but when I was writing this, I was really reminded of um, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, 
at the very, very beginning, um, her aunt, but before she sings her Over the Rainbow song, her aunt shouts at her and says, go find a place where you won't get yourself into any trouble. And Dorothy says, some place where there isn't any trouble... Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's far, far away, behind the moon, beyond the rain, somewhere over the rainbow. And that's kind of how the beginning bit goes. This, she, well, you didn't want me to carry on, so just we got the first bit in there. But she was drawn by this hope of a trouble-free life. You know, she then escaped her life and finds herself in another one that is actually far, far worse. Elimelech also made this choice. His intention was to preserve his family in the face of famine, but he withdrew from Judah. He withdrew from Bethlehem, the house of bread, the land of promise. Moab was Elimelech's greener pasture, But what he met with there was hardships that he could never have predicted and he was never able to return to Judah. It can feel instinctive for us to retreat and it can feel instinctive for us to look for greener pastures when we're facing trouble. It can be tempting for us to find our security and to find some sort of comfort outside of God and his people and his will. So a principle from today's passage is surely that in hardship and in suffering, what we need more than anything is God's continual presence, his provision, his security. And God's presence is where? It's with his people. See, in Old Testament times, God's presence was kind of um, in, a, in a geographical place. It was, it was with Israel in the land of promise. But today, it's not in a physical place. It's not in, the, in a church, in this building. It's with his people. God's presence is with his people. And so scripture tells us over and over again that, that God's people, and, and in the New Testament, it talks about the church as being the manifold wisdom of God. It's, it's the place where God can reveal his manifold wisdom for life. Sometimes, when suffering and hardship makes us feel tempted to look elsewhere for comfort the the bravest thing that you can do is just standing firm refusing to withdraw and retreat refusing to say no to that meeting up refusing to 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 give in to the temptation to just stay at home and, and to not push in to the to the community that God has placed around you Community and family life here at New Community is an avenue of God's grace. We need to recognise our need to be together. Because what Ruth offered Naomi was this unyielding friendship and companionship. Naomi didn't have to do that walk alone, and neither do we. I can't help but be inspired by Ruth's devotion. In fact, we were so inspired. We had that passage on our, when we got married on our order of service, which was a bit random thinking back to it. But it was just such a beautiful description of commitment and companionship and, and love. Um, you see, God is saving people from across the nations and he's saving them into family. And families are devoted to one another. And they, they, they reflect that devotion that Ruth had for Naomi. In suffering and hardship, friends, let's not retreat. But there's also a temptation when life doesn't pan out the way we want. There is also a temptation to redefine ourselves in some way. Naomi went literally so far as to actually change her name. 
Naomi means pleasant and Mara means bitter. So she, she went so far as to change the name that she had to reflect the life that she'd lived thus far. I don't want to be critical of Naomi in any way because when you look at it, this was a woman who had had a decade of hardship and, and yet her daughters-in-law, who, who had family in Moab, who had had a rough ride, they, they, they wanted to stay with her. Like, I think that's amazing. They want, there was something about her, even in the, the emptying, there was something about her that made them think, I would leave my gods and my family to have what you have. Now, that, isn't that a challenge to her? So I'm not knocking her in any way. That, that she, she moved, went back by faith. You know, there was something in there. And there was enough in her life that Ruth was like, I want your God to be my God. But when she changed her name and declared that, that God was against her, that wasn't true. Okay, that bit wasn't true. And so we can be tempted to, to, to redefine ourselves um, because our circumstances make us believe lies about God's activity on our behalf. I wonder if any of you can relate. You see, we can easily create false identities, redefine who we are at the core. When stuff happens, when circumstances happen, we can, we can sort of make sense of it by concluding that, that you know, by changing who we are. We can say, well, well I must be unlovable. I'm, I'm a mistake. I always mess it up. That's just who I am. I'm just always mess it up. I'm a disappointment, a failure. I'm worthless. And sometimes our disappointments are too much to bear and it's so much easier to lay blame, lay blame at someone else's door. Okay? I'm always treated like this by people. And subconsciously, usually, what we've d- defined ourselves as is a victim of life. See, all of those are false identities for children of God. I have a temptation in my life to redefine what God's goodness looks like. What I find I have to fight against and felt challenged as I was making this is this craving that we have for a life that is comfortable and predictable and trouble-free and, and pleasurable. And so when it's not, I tend to judge God's goodness based on how well my life is working for me, rather than on his zeal to accomplish his redemptive purposes for me. So what I, you know, when, when things don't pan out how I want, and I'm feeling uncomfortable, and I'm feeling, you know, like it's not, I'm like, oh, you know, this battle of faith of, are you really for me? Because without realizing, I've redefined what God's goodness actually looks like in my life. You see, I'm so committed to my comfort, but God is so committed to my holiness, like, and that looks really different when it's played out. He is so committed to, to the, my holiness. And so sometimes I'm warring against that. But his, his commitment to that is unwavering. It is unwavering. It will not end. He is committed to us. His goodness is evident in that commitment to us because that is better for me. That is better for me. I need to continue to remember and embrace his gracious work in my life. And maybe you do too. Whether it's grief and suffering like Naomi or facing the discomfort and disappointment in our life, we can all be tempted to question God's activity on our behalf. Naomi's grief and hardship was real and it was devastating, but it wasn't evidence that God had withdrawn his love and grace from her. You see, God's grace... 
was over Naomi in her suffering, but she didn't realise it at the time. When things are dark and when we can't see, it's hard to see God's activity that is at work. It's really hard to live by faith and not by sight when, it feels, when it's dark. We can't see what God is doing, but God was at work in Naomi's life. God's grace was over Naomi when her son set eyes on Ruth. God's grace was with Naomi when she was in a field in Moab, in the right place, at the right time to hear about God bringing bread back to Bethlehem. She, his grace was with her, was with her to give her the, the strength to get up and make that journey. God's grace was with Naomi when Ruth clung to her. And God's grace was with them as they entered Bethlehem at the time of harvest, the barley harvest. That's your teaser for next week. So we have this temptation to retreat and redefine, and we must resist that. And we have this continual need to return. So point two, the second reality is that as God's people living in a fallen world, we need to recognize the continual need to return. Naomi returned. It's repeated many times at the end of that first chapter. Naomi returned. So Naomi returned to Bethlehem, a special place where God promised promised to invest his name amongst his people. It was a long and physical one, like I've said. We also move away in our hearts. We drift and we must return. As in Naomi's life, it might be suffering and it might be hardship that pushes us to believe that God is against us. We need to return to God in faith. It probably won't be a physical one, but returning in our heart to confidence in God and in his purposes. It might be, however, like the children of Israel, sin that pushes us away. A persistent kind of mindset to do things our way. It might be that that pushes us away from God. This pattern of doing something your way and not submitting to the will of God that doesn't reflect who you are in Christ. Again, it's not for us then a physical journey of returning, but one in our hearts. This is actually what the Bible calls repentance. In Joel 2, it explains it really well, 12 to 13. This is another book in the Old Testament says God says to Israel return to me with all of your heart with fasting and weeping and with mourning rend your heart and not your garments return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster return to God it looks like rendering your heart and, and sin is most of all not a failure in our behaviour, because it's easy to say sorry and feel sorry and be repentant about that. But first of all, what sin is, is a failure in our loving of God. It's a failure in our intimacy with God, which is why it's about rendering your heart. It's a failure in terms of relationship. So when we talk about repenting biblically, what we're talking about is our heart being grieved, not that we let ourselves down and we should have done better, but our heart is grieved because we have grieved the Holy One whom we love so much. There's a difference. As a covenant family, repentance characterizes our lives that that is the coming back again to God the rendering our hearts and returning again is something that is 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 a, is a pattern of holiness for the people of God 
Okay, it's how we battle against sin. It requires us to continually return to God in faith. And finally, my final point, the third reality we can observe is the sufficiency of Christ. Naomi came home just as she is. She couldn't get her life together. She, she didn't have all her theology sorted. Like We've covered that bit. Her theology wasn't sorted. And this is a massively important fa- point. It's, it's, it's not biblical faith to try and convince yourself that things are better than they actually are, putting a brave face on it. It is not biblical faith to feel good about things that are not actually good. That's not biblical faith either. See, Naomi could look reality in the face, and that's what biblical faith is. It can look reality in the face and not flinch. Faith brought her home, but she arrived home broken and weak. So much so, if you think about it, there was this, she stirred up the whole town. They're all talking about it. She arrived empty. She came back a mess. And this is the point I'm trying to make. And this is the, these are the words of um, somebody who's written a commentary on, on Ruth called Mary Wilson Hannah. It's a brilliant commentary. She says, The Lord's fundamental posture towards Naomi hinges not on the perfection of her returning, but on the perfection of the one to whom she returns. It's not the quality of her faith that determines her position as God's beloved daughter, but on the object of her faith. God fills her empty hands. See, God, Christ is sufficient to restore us. And biblical faith sees reality as it is, but recognizing that Christ is infinitely greater. He is infinitely greater than any trouble that we face and infinitely more able to meet us where we're at and to restore us. God was at work to restore Naomi. Friends, he's at work to restore us too. His grace is sufficient to meet us where we're at. We are his beloved children. If you've put your um, trust in Christ today, um, and at some point, you know, in, in your, if part of your story is making this commitment to, to follow Jesus, there, there's this incredible, unwavering commitment of God over your life that that he is so committed to you as his beloved child to outwork his purposes in you and to restore you. And sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes we don't recognise it. But it's always, always happening. He never stops working. That song, Waymaker, even when I don't see it, he's working. He's working. He's always working. And he never stops. And, and we, we can be, you know, so swing from... But he never stops working. He is committed to restoring you, committed to loving you, committed to keep you returning in faith. We need to live by faith and not by sight. We need to be a covenant community that can look reality in the face, but live by faith and not by sight. Our over the rainbow land that Dorothy and Elimelech wanted to find, a place where there isn't any trouble, it is a glorious place that we're headed to. It is in our future. You see, because of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection, we get the everlasting welcome of the Father. You have got the everlasting welcome of the Father over you, okay? Because of Jesus, because of Christ. You see, Christ is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for you today, whatever you're facing. 
and every day to meet you where you're at and restore you. I'd just like to invite the band to come back. We're going to respond in a minute. Um, just really felt stirred to respond today in a slightly different way, but felt like we needed to make a response as a people to this. Um, Naomi, as we'll see over the coming weeks, continued to respond to the activity of God or what she thought might be the activity of God. She, she, sometimes it was a physical, I'll get up and I'll walk 30 miles through the desert. But it, as we'll see in the following weeks, I'm not giving it away, there are other moments where she responded to this glimmer of hope. And I think we need to respond to God today. See, I just feel like God has, you know, maybe stirred some hearts here to, that may have been tempted to retreat because life feels hard. Maybe some of us have been tempted to redefine who, who God is and who we are and what his purpose is towards us. Maybe some of us um, are just really struggling to, to live by faith and, and, and some of us find that it's our circumstances that constantly dictate what we believe about our lives. So I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I'm just going to pray and then we're going to, yeah, we're going to sing a song as a response. But let's just, yeah, allow the Holy Spirit to come and to, to work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we just invite you here. Thank you that we are your people. Thank you that you are our God. Father, we want to recognize your sovereign rule and your gracious rule over our lives. I thank you, God, that for, for everyone who's put their trust in you, Jesus, you have extended an everlasting kindness to over their lives. Lord, I want to thank you that you continue to supply us with grace. We want to praise you that you are faithful, this ebbing, flowing current of faithfulness that keeps moving us and restoring us in your purposes. God, we want to thank you for that. We want to praise you for it. We thank you, Jesus, for being the one who fills empty hands, the one who supplies what we lack. Lord, would we be a people who define ourselves according to your word and not according to our circumstances would you build resilience in us holy spirit to be a people marked by faith let our, let your word define us not our circumstances or the world lord we want to cling to you and if where lies have crept in where lies about who we are have crept in oh god we just know that you can move in power right now and and you can you can dismantle them because of the power of your word and the power of your spirit here with us. I just pray, dismantle lies in the name of Jesus. Thank you that we are beloved children who have a glorious future. Would you come now in power and restore us and lift our heads afresh to who you are. And if for those of us who may be sat here who haven't put our trust in you, Lord, I want to thank you for your grace on Ruth who followed other gods, who didn't know you, but was brought into your incredible salvation purposes. I want to thank you that you welcome in people from every tribe and every tongue. You are the one who welcomes people in, Lord, who don't know you. Lord, there's always space in your family. I want to thank you for that. And I want to pray that you would reveal yourself to anyone here that doesn't know who you are. Thank you, God, that you never stop working. Amen.